coming up on this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast, how you can travel back to 1995. New revelations about the machine that helped win the Second World War. And we'll be joined by Chris Romero to get the story of the legendary Vectrex console. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 176, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And no Joe this week because he's uh, exploring game shops in Japan. I've been watching, <laughs> keeping an eye on his Instagram feed. Looks like he might already have, um, probably more than his uh, weight allowance on the plane back will allow, <laughs> by the looks of it. So uh, It's going to be ripping cartridges out of the boxes at the airport, <laughs> trying to fit them all in. <laughs> Stuffing them in his trousers and yeah. his pants and everything. So uh, this week, just me and you, Ravi, but you know, what a show we've got lined up. I mean, you may have noticed something a little bit different at the start of this week's podcast there. Oh my God, we've changed the intro tune, but you know, we've wanted to have an intro tune of our own for such a long time, like a custom one, because we've used one from a game trailer before. Copyright. Yeah, (laughs) so it's really good to have our own. And we've actually got this one composed by Mike Clark as well. Now, Mike Clark, we had him on one of our early episodes, didn't we? Um, yeah, from Psygnosis. Yeah, I mean, he worked for Psygnosis for years. And um, games like Bill's Tomato Game that I loved on the Amiga back in the day, Microcosm, Globduel, Lemmings 2, The Tribes did music on that as well. Um, a bit later on, stuff like Wipeout 64, Wipeout 3, Destruction Derby, Raw. So, I mean, you know, legendary composer. And we often see him at shows. I mean, we're hanging out at the bar with him, weren't we, at Amiga Island? And then I was hanging out with him at Pixel Heaven the other weekend. And we always say to Mike after a few drinks, how do you feel about doing a, you know, a retro theme tune for us? And he finally agreed. Yeah, and this is the kind of final piece of the puzzle because yep. we wanted the new website doing, we wanted the new logo, and that's all been done. So now this is the final stage. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much, Mike. We are loving your work. Now this week, we are going to be talking about um, something, you know, speaking of our early episodes, I remember you saying about like three years ago, oh, I'd love to do a show about the Vectrex. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And, you know... We've been, I've been contacted by uh, Lawrence and uh, quite a few Vectrex fans. They've yep. actually sent me Vectrex posters, Vectrex guidebooks, and he gave me this contact, Chris Romero, and he said, contact this guy. He's an absolute expert, and he sat on panels about the Vectrex before with some of the original creators. You know, he's got a massive knowledge of the system, and this was such an innovative gaming system back in the time. And, you know, it's going to be amazing to hear about the story and to kind of hear about how the fans are still pushing that system. Because whenever we go to, like, you know, Play Expo and we finally get, like, you know, an hour or two on the machines, I always see you hanging around the Vectrex. <laughs> it's yeah. Like you've been drawn to that system, haven't you, for some reason? Yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, I, I don't think there's a visual display that's as stunning as that with a machine from kind of that 80s era. Yeah, and it was a, a vector-based console, wasn't it? So yeah. it was very different to anything else out there. And it's got a really interesting story. So we are going to be joined by Chris Romero, who is a modern-day, I'm going to try and say this, Vectrex philanthropist. There you go. <laughs> I can't get that word out. <laughs> yeah, Ravi typed it in the show notes. I'm like, yeah, what? So uh, yeah, we're going to be joined by him in about 15 minutes from now. Now, something else that we've been doing on the show over the last few weeks been talking about game shop memories, and I'm amazed by how many people have been contacted. We're still getting emails, aren't we? Getting loads, yeah, like a crazy amount. I think we're going to have to put these together and put them on like a web page or something. You know, like I said, I was chatting to Jörg from uh, Scene World, and you know, he's planned to kind of do something like this this for years. So, Um, I got one here from Mark Heslop, and he says before his university days, he worked in Ritz Video. Do you remember Ritz before Blockbuster? I don't. I don't. I'm afraid. Maybe you were. You're a bit older. Yeah, well, it was early '90s, and they um, they. Blockbuster took them over probably around 91, 92, okay. I think. It used to be Ritz. I don't know if they were everywhere all over the country. And he said he remembers renting out cartridge games to kids and he used to play Groundhog Day every day for a laugh, prompting customers to ask if I played it the day before, which of course I said no. <laughs> and he said during university, he took a year or two off and he worked in a computer shop called Microfun. And He'd often mess around in there and he spent, you know, a lot of time playing Pilot Wings on the SNES and when those video mega CD games started to come in. And he kind of got out of retro, but recently he was watching a Tecmoan video about the Commodore SX-64. He didn't realise it was such a thing back in the day. Since then, he's now amassed a massive 8-bit collection handhelds. He started buying them all. So uh, so he's got back into it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, discovered our podcast as well. So, uh, yeah, we apologise for all that money that you know they're going to spend now you're into retro. Always happens that, doesn't it? That's it, yeah. I, I, I kind of see something and then I want it all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I bought the other day of eBay and this is ridiculous. I bought a Kodak Photo CD player. 
That is ridiculous. I don't. I remember going to the shop and actually putting my. I think it wasn't an SD card. It was like really bad flash. And then yeah. you give it to them, and they make you a photo CD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For about a year, that was big. Well, I got yeah. Cause it was yeah before like you know DVD players and all that came along. I thought you know there's no there's not many videos on YouTube about it, so I thought I'd make one. Yeah. And I found one on eBay for like twenty quid as well. I'll give it a try. It's like new in books. So, yeah. Um, I don't know, you burn the CDs or even if you can, but there you go. So, yeah, we apologize for introducing you to this uh, ridiculously expensive and space consuming hobby. Now, another one here from Lex Lander. He goes, Hey, Dan and Ravi. Now, he lives in Devon. Back in the day, he used to buy his games in 1989 at a place called the Computer Shop at Holland Walk in Barnstable. Um, it didn't have a sign, so it was always just called the Computer Shop. No one knew what it was called, apparently. So when he was there, he eventually got into the Amiga and that kind of thing too. He became friends with a guy called Lee who did most of the deliveries and would actually personally come around your house, lug the computer around, the Commodore 1084 monitor, up the <laughs> steps as well, set it all up for him, install some of the games, get it working. And apparently they're all like, you know, really knowledgeable in there as well. Like uh, the owner of the shop, if you asked him how much RAM a system had got or how many games were released for it or what, you know, visual display unit you needed, um, he'd know all the answers, which is something you don't get a lot of these days, especially that kind of like, you know, real customer service like that. Yeah, you used to have independent stores with really, really good knowledge, you know, and yeah, that's lost. I'd say Maplins was probably the last place where that was kind of going on in the UK. Yeah, I mean, Maplins here in Nottingham, they were a really good team in there. I mean, obviously very, very expensive as Maplins was. Um, and he said, today it's a sandwich shop, that shop. So, <laughs> And our final one from uh, Jonah Naylor. He goes, hey, Dan Ravi and Joe, uh, not in order of importance, of course. Um, he goes, your series on what was your game shop as a kid has brought it all back to me and made me laugh. He said he lived near Selby in North Yorkshire and their local computer and game shop was called the Selby Computer Centre. And it was a high street shop, um, everything going on in there as well. But he said whenever he watches The Simpsons, he gets a bit of a flashback as the owner of the shop was a dead ringer for the comic book guy. <laughs> he was on The Simpsons. So uh, he said in the late 80s, he was checking out adverts in Amstrad Action Magazine for three and a half inch external floppy drives, which he thought was really good because he had a CP. 6128 and remember they had the three inch drives yeah, built in yeah. didn't they and they were obviously you know a bit rare I think only Amstrad really used them over here didn't they and he really wanted a three and a half inch drive so he nagged his mum and dad for one for Christmas they ordered one from the shop and when they got there to pick it up just before Christmas comic book guy uh, greeted us blushing saying there'd been a robbery and his new three and a half inch external drive had been stolen he said, weirdly, the shop looked completely fine and everything else was still there. Uh, but apparently they must have just broken in to steal that one disc. So uh, he was gutted and apparently never ended up getting a three-and-a-half-inch drive for his Amstrad. And so. comic book guy was sat at the back with his <laughs> nice new disc drive. <laughs> exactly. So we are, we are living your memories and we keep them coming in. Show at theretrohour.com or you can comment on our little thread that's running on our Facebook page. Now, before we get into this week's show, um, we will just want to say a big thank you to the people who allow us to keep doing the podcast week in, week out. As the Retro Hour podcast, you know, it's mainly crowd-supported. Thanks to your donations, we can keep doing this show. And, you know, we're like three and a half years we've been doing this for now. Yep. There's no way we could have done it this long without your support. So any donation via PayPal of any amount, massively appreciated. And all, of course, goes back into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do that, there's a little support us tab on our website at theretrohour.com. And for making your donation of any amount... You will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Mark Simonite. Marvin Drugsma. Simon Buckner. And Christopher Zaremba, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, we'd massively appreciate it. You'll find it at theretrohour.com. Now, this week, of course, um, it's been all over the news. The 75th anniversary of D-Day. And we've talked about the um, Colossus at Bletchley Park a lot in the past. Yeah, and we've also talked about the bomb, which was basically the one that was used to decode Enigma. So Enigma was the code that was used to send out commands to the main troops. Well, Colossus was used for the Lorenz machine, which was basically Hitler's high command. So Hitler, when he'd be talking directly to his generals that would be this machine. And that's what Colossus was built for. Yeah. Now, there, there were many Colossus machines, and really interestingly, nobody knew about it. There was 10 of these machines, and nobody knew about it outside of the intelligence service till the 1980s. It's crazy, isn't it? So it was, it was all completely hidden. But now they have a remade version working, uh, original version, at Bletchley Park. And I, that's been running since 2008, and that's absolutely awesome. But um, during the World War II, they had a group of women who were called the Wrens, which was the Women's Royal Naval Service, and they had no idea 
of what they were doing on the computer. So they were, you know, putting in calculations. They were kind of working with the, uh, these machines, but they had no idea it was going to this huge trick to fool Hitler into basically thinking the D-Day landings were going to happen a bit up on the top of the coast. And the way that they found out about that was because they got the information back from Hitler talking to his commanders saying, send the panzer troops yeah. up, up north. So it, it was very interesting. And now they're going to do a talk where they're actually going to get some of these surviving wrens and they're going to say to them, you know, this is what you were actually doing. <laughs> 75 <laughs> yeah. years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what you contributed to. You know. So I guess a lot of them back then, they were just kind of, you know, hide as maybe like data entry jobs, you'd call it today, yeah. I guess, wouldn't or you? Or you'd get yeah. like a block of code or a sheet of code and you'd just have to kind of solve that and then send it off and not know what that code was used for at all. And it seems crazy to me as well that, like you said then, like they didn't release any information about what this machine did until the 1980s. I remember reading about, you know, people that had written history books and kind of mentioned it and they weren't allowed, you know, to, to put those paragraphs and stuff in there about yeah, it until yeah, then. Cause it was, it yeah, because it was under the National Secrets Act, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's fascinating. And I mean, you know, it, it's worth a visit as well from what you've told me. I've not been to Bletchley Park, but I know you went down there probably not long after Colossus yeah, was installed. Yeah, and, and since then they've redone it as well. So there was this whole... Um, I think Kate and William went down there and then yeah. they, they, they redid half of it because they were like, this is one of the most fabulous places for computing and British history. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I recommend anybody goes down there and checks it out, but also checks out the story of World War II and the D-Day operations because there was a lot of computers involved. Yeah, I mean, that was really like, you know, the, the first kind of supercomputers were made. Yeah. Right, for it, really, yeah. so. <laughs> no one can accuse this show of not going far enough back. No. There you go, 1945. <laughs> Come on, that is retro, isn't it? Well, we're going to go to 1995 <laughs> now. Now, this is something that can literally take you to 1995, almost. This looks awesome, actually. This is a video game called Back in 1995. Yeah, so... You remember those games in 95 where it was kind of stretched polygons. You could see lots of pixels. It was, you remember Silent Hill. Yeah. Resident Evil with fixed camera angles. and was tank controls. Tank controls, yeah. And Alone in the Dark as well, which was actually one really huge um, kind of thing. It was a horror game, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's been a kind of movement of doing demakes. And there's a YouTube channel at the moment called 98 Demake. And he does hilarious stuff so he's done like gta 5 if it was in 1998 (laughs) Uh, resident evil 7 uh minecraft if it was on 1992 on a game boy so he kind of probably wouldn't love different to be fair (laughs) (laughs) rips all this stuff but um back in 95 is an indie release now we're linking an xbox article and i think the xbox guys are being a little bit too harsh on this i think they missed the point of it a little. yeah they missed the point because they're saying you know all the controls are a bit stiff and the camera angles are forced but that was the 1995 experience. Yeah, that's what we had to put up with, you know what I mean, back then. <laughs> yeah, and, and this game is actually set in 1995, so it will appeal to everybody who's into that kind of pop culture. Yeah, in this article as well, I mean, it's talking about, you know, stuff that happened in 1995. You remember, you know, what a year it was as well. The original Toy Story came out in theatres too. Um, which, you know, in a way, they're talking about that. And it's kind of like, you look at the cinema now, we've got like Aladdin, Toy Story 4. <laughs> Toy Story 4 is coming out. Um, they're going to be doing a live-action version of The Lion King. It's like, it is suddenly like it's 1995 yeah, or everything yeah. anyway. So, so uh, you can get this for the Xbox, but you can also get this on Steam as well. Yeah. So I'd, I'd try it out. It's only kind of tenor. Yeah. And it looks good fun. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, you know, if you did enjoy these... It, I can see that it is for a niche audience, really. I mean, it, say this, I don't know who did this review. If he's like, you know, a 20-year-old... He might not have experience of these games first time round and yeah. not be able to appreciate them for what they're worth. I mean, we've said it on the show before that really those early 3D games have probably aged less well than a lot of the 2D sprite-based games. But I think when you get over the initial shock of how badly the graphics have dated. Because I, I was chatting to a friend about this the other day, and he'd been playing Tomb Raider 1 on the Saturn again. And he, On the Saturn? He yeah. must have been like, God, yeah, because I played that the other day, and uh, it is painful. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what he said. He said, you know, for the first maybe half an hour, it was a bit like, oh, getting used to the controls, and even like, the, you know, the, the draw distance, and watching things draw, and like, you know, as you're walking up to it. Yeah. But he said after about half an hour, when you're kind of in the zone with it, and you're like over that initial shock, the immersion is still there because it's still a good game. Yeah, and there's stuff like the sound effects and stuff like that. But yeah, it's hard. And also, like, when you're using a nice new display yeah. with, like, you know, 
backlit and everything like that, it's a total different experience because some of the polygons will come through and you'll be like, oh, that looks awful, you know, when it would have looked nicer on a kind of CRT with a bit of contrast and stuff. Yeah, and the CRT kind of, you know, blurred them a little bit so they didn't look quite as sharp. I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, the games probably didn't look as bad yeah. as they do now in our like, modern 4K displays. Um, but, you know, if you've got nostalgia for that early 3D era, which I think it seems to be coming back in from what I've seen recently, then um, this game looks a load of fun. So I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of previous guests that we've had on this show, we had uh, Andy Palmer on from... Arcade Club, didn't we, a couple of years ago? Yeah, and we still haven't visited, and that place looks insanely (laughs) awesome. Well, Andy has opened another arcade place, and this just looks fantastic. This is in Leeds. Yeah, a bit nearer to us, actually, this one, isn't it? Yeah, it may be slowly coming down to Nottingham. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if they won't come, I'll come to them. Um, I used to live in Leeds, it's a great city. Oh, really good, yeah. The thing about Leeds is it hasn't had a proper arcade for years. And if anyone's going to do it right, I mean, Arcade Club is who you want in town, isn't well, it? Well, he said, you know, um, there's 300 machines in Manchester, but 250 already in Leeds. Yeah. And he's going to rise that up to 300 machines in the next coming months. So that is absolutely awesome. And it only opened like a week ago. On May yeah, 30th, yeah, so. yeah. It's three floors. Yeah. As well, in uh, Kirk style. In Kirk style, yeah. yeah. Well, I was looking on, because um, he did announce it a while ago on the, the Facebook page for Arcade Club that, you know, it was coming to Leeds. Mm. And i kind of been following the progress there as well. And he's been showing loads of, like, you know, them wheeling, like, you know, arcade cabinets and stuff in and the collection gradually improving. And, you know, if you remember, I mean, we, we've talked before about the, the real nostalgic feeling of walking into a room and hearing all these machines on at the yeah, same time. Yeah, you just and, don't get that anymore. And I'm sure this place is like exactly providing that feeling you know we should do a little uh day trip to Leeds, shouldn't we oh 100 percent. and you know he's talking about the games we've got in there stuff like centipede commando daytona usa oh, so i love yes. playing that on arcade uh, donkey kong frogger mortal Kombat, which you know i still remember the first time i saw that in uh in an arcade in pontins actually and seeing those digitized graphics me and my brother, I think we probably spent about 50 quid of my dad's money like just on that, on that cabinet all weekend. It was two pounds as well, wasn't it, Mortal Kombat? It yeah. was, actually, you're right. Very expensive for back in the day. Um, Cuba there as well, the original Star Wars simulator. And, I mean, they've got, you know, all these original cabinets that are well cared for and all being restored and, you know, running as good as new. So it looks amazing. And I think you're right. I mean, we... Because we haven't made it over to the one in Manchester. Thing is, when we're at Play Expo, we generally do the after party, or we end up at some bar yeah. or some sleazy bar on your uh, on your insistence, Ravi. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think we 100 percent have to come and visit this in Leeds. I mean, it's only like an hour and a half up the road from us, isn't yeah. it? So uh, the only thing you're not going to get from uh, back in the day is that stale cigarette smell. I imagine when you walk in and. Uh, your feet might not stick to the carpet because we'll, it's only new. We'll pump it in there. <laughs> <laughs> it should, should release fragrances that smell like that, shouldn't Arcade it? smell. <laughs> Sweat and cigarettes. Yeah, I'm not sure whether there's a big demand for that outside of arcades, but uh, yeah, definitely worth a visit. Now, obviously, we're going to be talking about the Vectrex in a moment. We thought it might be quite good timing to talk about the Vectrex Mini. Yeah, so this is a story kind of from last year, actually, but um, I think it's really interesting. So we're going to be talking about the Vectrex and Milton Bradley and uh, GC as well, the guys that did it. Well, it turns out that one of the developer's sons posted a picture on Reddit of a Vectrex Mini. And this this isn't a recreation of the console. This is an original fat CRT in a kind of mini little portable Vectrex case. Well, it's luggable. Yeah, you're not going to fit that in your back pocket. <laughs> no, but um, they actually shared some pictures of it. And, uh, you know, the, the guy's dad worked at the divine design division and they shared pictures of it and he did one of uh, it actually turning... Oh, sorry. He did one of it actually turning on and it seems to work. That's crazy. So it looks like, I mean... It does look like a finished product, looking at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, I mean, it reminds me, it's a 9 by 11 inch screen. I remember my mum used to have like um, a little portable TV that was about that size that she'd have in the bedroom. I think it was black and white um, in the early 90s. And this thing here looks quite similar to that, but it's got a little controller attached to it too. And yeah, I mean, by the looks of it, they are playing actual vector-based Vectrex games on this little portable system. Yeah, because there was a lot of development. So they were trying to do a Vectrex colour. They were trying to do a Game Boy equivalent as well. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that all in the interview coming up next. Absolutely. So um, one that we've wanted to do for a long time. We're going to be talking about the history of the Vectrex with Chris Romero, this week's special guest. Uh, just a quick heads up as well that you can get the Retro Hour podcast from any of your favourite podcast places. I know uh, the big announcement this week that we'll be talking about next week's show is that iTunes might be going away. 
Uh, but the thing is, you know, people, you don't get your podcasts of iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts, isn't it? It's been broken for years. Good riddance, <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about that in next week's show. But wherever you get your podcasts from, I mean, you know, Stitcher were on there, the new Google Podcast service, Apple Podcasts on your phone that I think is now bundled with iOS, um, or just through our website if you want to download the MP3 file. That's all on there. We even put them on YouTube as well if you just want to listen to the audio yeah. on there. So anyway, and get the show, you know, we try and get it as many we'll just places shout possible. at your Alexa, play the Retro Hour and see what happens. That does work, actually. Yeah. Alexa, play the Retro Hour podcast. Or OK Google, play the Retro Hour podcast. So yeah, give that a go. Maybe next time... You've you... just triggered everybody's Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping someone might say that next time they walk into PC World or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> little challenge there. Send us a video. Right, then there'll be more news on next week's episode. And right now, let's talk about the Vectrex. <laughs> You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and this week we are going to be covering a system that you know always draws our attention when we see it at retro gaming expos and events and arcades. And it is really a very unique system for the time with those amazing vector-based graphics. And this week we are going to be talking all about the Vectrex. Now we are joined by uh, someone who knows quite a lot about this system. Welcome to the show, Chris Romero. Hey, glad to be here. Now, a pleasure having you on. It's great that we're going to finally do an episode about the Vectrex because, like I said, it was such a unique system for the time. I mean, do you remember when you first first saw or used a Vectrex and the impact that it made on you? Oh, yeah. It's it's easy for me to remember. The first place that I ever saw a Vectrex was at a chain of stores here in the U.S. called Sears. They're still around. You know, they're going through some issues right now. But uh, as a kid walking into Sears, seeing a full-on display stand with a Vectrex sitting on top of it, uh, that was just incredible. I'd already been around video games and computers for a while. I was lucky enough to have access to an Altair in shops and then, of course, on Friends or in our own house playing things like the Atari and the Intellivision. And our family at that point had the Intellivision. But the Vectrex, when I saw it, I was just hanging around Sears all of the time. I wanted that thing desperately. But we were a single video game family, and that was not the Vectrex. But lucky, luckily enough, Vectrex hang, hung around in stores for a long time, was able to play the uh, display consoles in stores and and uh, see some things that I didn't see for quite a while after that, uh, as far as the Vectrex goes, and then ran into it again a few years later after I uh, joined the service. While I was in there, some friends in the service actually had carried one to one of the... the uh, the dormitories that I was in at the time was going into some training. So we would sit around and play the Vectrex a couple of years after it had gone out of the stores. But from that point on, I just had to have one. So, you know, made it up in my mind that sooner or later, the Vectrex is going to cross my path uh, as a personally owned console. Well, you're quite a kind of historian on the Vectrex. And I was wondering if we could kind of talk about the original um, kind of conception of the machine. And it was created by Smith Engineering. Um, what do you know about Smith Correct. Engineering? Were they like a small company? Did they have a history with gaming at all? Oh, certainly. They had a history uh, long before, well, long before, relatively speaking, long in the uh, consumer field of producing other products, one of those most notably being the Microvision. So that was another handheld gaming unit long before the Game Boy came out. LCD, one of the first LCDs in the you know, in the world to be deployed anywhere on a handheld cartridge-based system as well. A um, little bit different than uh, than other cartridge-based systems, but they had a they had quite a bit of experience in not only creating something but working with companies to bring to market video video games and electronic games before that. So when they were running into bringing the Vectrex to the market, and you know, once again they brought on their their internal staff for not only um, electronics design, but also case design, you know, the whole, basically the whole layup of the Vectrex of how to bring it to market. Started out with, I'm sure you've seen, you know, some other things on the internet, but started out with building up something with small tubes and electronics that you would find in any uh, prototype scene and then slowly migrating it into the case that you might have seen in other pictures of, which is the prototype case, which the, the, um, at their time they called it the home arcade. Um, that was all just laid up 
plexi that they, or perspex, I guess, in your part of the world, <laughs> that they uh, that they bent into shape with heat and painted up with paint and did some in- interesting breadboard choices on the inside, like taking the flyback that would run the high voltage section of the Vectrex and power the screen, shielding the flyback with a uh, with an apple juice can at the time. Wow. <laughs> so lots of interesting choices that they made in bringing that thing to market. That's the thing, being, you know, a vector-based, CRT-based um, system with the internal monitor built in as well. I mean, did they have like a, a spare load of monitors and try and make use of them? And how did they get on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one could only wish. Now, that, as far as I'm aware of, they had visited some local electronic stores um, lots of these things are surplus, right? Purchased CRTs to build up the initial prototypes, and it wasn't the Samsung screen that you'd see in the you know in the production Vectrex in the beginning. But it was smaller screens that they used to build up the prototypes, and then worked up to trying to you know finally bring it to market to, uh, in in contacting larger suppliers like Samsung and and finally getting the screen that we see in the production unit um, much later. Uh, did they see the kind of computer systems as a rival, or did they see themselves as something unique at the time in the market? Yeah, it's, there's a couple of ways to look at it. From a home gaming system, they saw themselves certainly as unique. They were going for the niche market, being that at the time, hooking up a video game system in the home, usually you know, resulted in booting your parents off of their own TV. So attacking the market by including in a, their own internal monitor, in addition to the fact that they were coming at the market from a different you know, aspect of using vector graphics-based systems rather than a raster scan system. But all of those combined together um, gave them the niche market to attack, you know, video gaming at that point and something else that they weren't doing a direct comparison, direct competitor against Atari. Of course, in other aspects, they were directly competing against Atari. They were, you know, talking about their performance of their machine, the look of the machine, and some ways how it, uh, not some ways, and in a major way, how it replicated a true arcade experience in the home. And that was not only just from the look of the screen vector graphics comparison directly with other vector graphics games in the um, in the arcades, but the fact it was an all-in-one unit played into that idea that it was a real arcade system brought into the house. As we see, you know, when they were moving forward with the Vectrex and other designs that never came to market, you know, they were going toward uh, using the Vectrex as a as a display for a computer system, plugging it into another accessory at the bottom that included a keyboard and a and a, and a wafer tape drive and other things down the road. I mean, there was, there was lots of things with the Vectrex that uh, never came to market, not just for the computer system, but, you know, other accessories that fit on the Vectrex itself. So, uh, so I would say in, your, in a wrap-up that uh, they had some designs and com- on direct competition, certainly attacking a niche market, and then forward-looking designs for computer systems to try to address that part of the market. Well, there was also the uh, 3D Imager, and uh, how did that work, and did it kind of catch on? So the 3D Imager worked in a sense of a mechanical method. So it was synced. So, so to describe for a moment how this works, you'll have the Vectrex itself. You'll have a regular controller. There's two controller ports on it. You'll plug the 3D Imager into the second controller port. That provides a method for a mechanical 3D where a spinning disk is, is electrically synced to the software that's running on the Vectrex itself such that any image that's displayed on the Vectrex is only displayed one eye at a time. So on the spinning disk that's inside the 3D imager, half of it is black, the other half of it has some colors that um, are also synced to the displayed image. So it'll, it'll display half the image where the black is over one eye, let's say your left eye. It'll display that part of the image that it's needed for the 3D workup. 
the disk will rotate around and then the Vectrex will display the other image that's meant for just maybe say your left eye. I, I guess you could equate it to LCD shutter glasses, but done on a mechanical scale instead of a wholly electronic scale. Well, also there's a light pen um, accessory as well. I mean, did many games support that? And uh, was there any utility software or maybe like odd uses for it? Well, there was a, there's a few things that were in planned um, and a few things that actually made it to market. So the light pen, you know, replaced um, or was in, used in place of the 3D imager. Those weren't used at the same time, also plugged into the second controller board, but used with some music software that came out, also some drawing software and some animation software, which was drawing that you could animate at the time. There were some other games that were planned to come out in the future, which or even some utilities, I would say utilities, but uh, some concepts that were, that were going to come out. So one of the ones that was never released, but eventually made it into the hands of everyone was Mailplane. Mostly it's educational software where you would load up a plane, fly to different states, unload it, but you have to make your way around the map. So it was going to be regional maps of different areas. The northeastern part of the U.S. was the only one that made it out into the release of Mailplane uh, post-release, not actually released back in the era, but released later on by the community itself who found the prototype and released it. There was also an engine analyzer that is part of the other prototypes that you may have seen, and it was exactly that. They would plan to hook the Vectrex up to be uh, a tune-up tool in place of maybe one of the sun engine analyzers of the day to help you tune up cars of the era. That never actually made it out, but the light pin was said to have been used for selection of different menus inside the engine analyzer as well as having it connect up to other, you know, external electronics too. But since then, the light pen has been used by a couple of modern developers to create other games, um, shooting games, or there's one that's hopefully going to be released soon. Very similar to another platform shooter that involves um, ducks and dogs. <laughs> so. Hopefully we'll see that release sometime. But uh, a few others have been released in the uh, interim, such as Whack-A-Mole that uses the light pen to do exactly that. Well, originally Smith Engineering were the owners and then they licensed it to General Consumer Electronics in 1981. It was shown at the summer CES. How well did that go down with the public and what was the kind of industry reaction at the time when they first saw the Vectrex? Well, from reading from old news reports and talking to Jay Smith, I mean, the industry action, industry reaction was pretty positive. It did hit its niche pretty well. It did have some exciting views on it. And despite the use of overlays to give it color, I mean, it, it did have a pretty positive reaction in the press. Unfortunately, of course, the timing of it was not the great timing that it could have been. But uh, it did make it to release, and it did make it to um, gain the to the point of gaining the attention of other companies such as Milton Bradley and Bandai, who uh, Milton Bradley being the one of the ones who ended up not only licensing it but buying the rights outright and in establishing worldwide distribution in at least in Europe and in. Uh, Norwegian companies, Nordic com countries. Bandai being the other licensee who took it and distributed it in somewhat modified form, for at least for the graphics anyway, in Japan. Well, during this time that uh, Milton Bradley kind of bought them, um, there was the video game crash of 1983. So how did that affect the Vectrex's popularity? And was it kind of a bit of a steal for Smiths then, getting Milton Bradley to buy them and then the crash happening? Well, I think timing, as far as Smith Engineering goes, timing was pretty much in their favor to get Milton Bradley to absorb the Vectrex. Of course, Milton Bradley had their eyes on wanting to get into video gaming somehow. Uh, certainly trying to generate a platform internally would have been expensive, especially compared to a company that had already done it for you at the time and something you could buy into. Um, but the... 
you know, as we saw at that point, video gaming platforms itself had lagged a bit. And other platforms out there having just loads and loads of substandard games being distributed and created and distributed for them uh, certainly hurt the video game industry as a whole. I think the Vectrex was somewhat, I wouldn't say responsible from it, but for it, but it's definitely somewhat of a victim of it. In, in the case of uh, timing for 1982 to 1984, the video game crash or the, or the reset of customer expectations for video games uh, didn't do the Vectrex any favors. The platform itself probably could have made some better choices or advanced a little bit further had it had the ability to have color vector graphics instead of just monochrome vector graphics uh, in it. So there was there was a combination of choices that that affected the Vectrex and its ability to get out into the world and its timing. But for the uh, for the um, timing for Jay and. Smith Engineering to sell it to Milton Bradley, probably about perfect, I would, I would estimate. <laughs> well, you mentioned Bandai there, and they were kind of looking after the Asian market. Um, was this affected at all by the crash, and how, how was it perceived in the Asian market? The people that I've talked to over there so far that have had that experience of the original era, you know, all saw it as something kind of quirky and niche market. By the time, you know, 1983 and 84 rolled around, certainly we were seeing, you know, the effects of, of Nintendo in the market with the, with the Famicom units, certainly by the end of 84, right? So while they saw it as, as interesting and as distinctive for its graphics display and for its all-in-one capability of being portable and just, you know, having that controller on it and all of that, the, I don't think that it was really should be considered as a any type of deep impact in the Japanese market. Well, we've looked a bit there at the history of the Vectrex, and I know there is still a very active scene today. And I'm actually set opposite a man who loves the Vectrex. Ravi's wanted to get into the Vectrex world for years. <laughs> um, I mean, say someone today like Ravi, for example, wanted to get started with the Vectrex and collecting. I mean. Where would you recommend they look and what should they look for? Well, you know, find out if you like it. Download the iPad app. Play around with some of the other emulators that are available on the PC and the Mac and, you know, other platforms. Even it's, There's even emulators that have been ported into the PlayStations and the Xboxes. Find out if you like it first. Um, watch some videos, certainly. Go to your local gaming groups in your area, like um, Bay, Bay Area Retro Gamers have you know lots of people in it who have Vectrexes who where you could go and you know visit someone's house and enjoy it and see just how much it's going to affect you more often than not I think a lot of people will get the bug certainly if they play it in person they'll finally get it versus watching YouTube videos of it or uh, even playing an emulator of it as good as that they are today and then continue on by talking to the other people in your retro gaming group to see if you can pick up one for cheap Certainly eBay is, is an option of going to buy them or Mercari or any of the other you know, online places to get it shipped to you. But more often than not, the best deals will be just talking to your local, you know, your local comrades in arms to acquire a Vectrex because someone always seems to be wanting to get rid of one because they're moving on. Not that they didn't like the Vectrex. It's just the fact that a lot of people like to get into different scenes. Could be the Engage, could be the Vectrex, could be Famicoms, could be all kinds of other retro gaming experiences. So, you know, there's always an opportunity to acquire a Vectrex for a reasonable price. What amazes me about the Vectrex is that many of the systems like Amstrad, Commodore, they've had their kind of rights you know, taken up by other companies and it's been, like, left dormant. But the rights ended up originally going back to Smith Engineering. How did that happen? Smith Engineering talked to Milton Bradley. And so after Milton Bradley had gotten out of the video gaming market and quite a few of other things that they were doing at the time, he was luckily enough to reacquire the rights directly from Milton Bradley. And then after that, I think the community at large was very fortunate 
through some of the early communications on the internet with uh, with Jay and just in person as well. Very fortunate that Jay gave the ability to the community to develop free of any licensing onus that you need maybe if you were going to do something like develop for Nintendo, right? So it's, it was it was great that Jay said, develop, here's some information that I have, go out there and build games and even replicate the games that we had originally distributed commercially. It was great that he allowed to do it, other people in the community to do that. Now, it's not a public domain system. Of course, it's still his license. He still holds it, but he still does allow people to develop for it and to for the for the original games to reproduce them at a reasonable cost. But with him having the rights again, I mean, was that kind of seen <clears throat> by the community as like maybe a, a hope for a revival or maybe like, you know, a recreation or new system coming out? There's always been a hope that someone will, will generate a new system from it, whether it's a handheld unit that the original team might want to get back into, which for a while they did. They, they were actually investigating uh, making a small version of the Vectrex, perhaps with one of the Sinclair... Um, TV tubes as the display tube for it. But um, for the people who've been around in the Vectrex scene for a while, always hope that the Vectrex will somehow be recreated in a quality way to be, you know, somehow distributed again, either through small individual efforts or maybe even through larger efforts as we saw that the Commodore was recreated in the joystick by uh, Jerry Ellsworth. Yeah. There's always a hope that maybe it'll be distributed somehow in a larger fashion. But uh, in the meantime, you know, there's uh, small community efforts that are definitely going on to provide some sort of recreation of the Vectrex. Well, talking of that community, um, how much has, like, Usenet or the internet kind of helped the community grow and start producing homebrew? <laughs> Well, if we look back in, you know, in the days of long gone past, at least as far as the Internet timescale is going, Usenet's pretty much dead. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, uh, there is definitely a Vectrex group that's out there, and it's a great place to go mine for historical data, not just um, where the Vectrex came from, but technical information that's still out on the old news group itself. But as, you know, going forward, we have Vector Gaming Forums, which has been around for quite a number of years, that is distributing information in its forum. Atari Age certainly has a Vectrex sub now. Um, took them a while to get there, but they have a Vectrex sub that's very popular itself. Um, Facebook has Vectrex Fans Unite, which is a fairly large group, you know, specifically oriented toward the Vectrex it's, um, there's uh, another. There's a few more Facebook groups as well that have a vector and/or Vectrex focus for bringing the community together, disseminating new information on gaming that's going on on it, uh, new hardware development, new software development, or in the case of a German university where you can go to actually take a course that involves a Vectrex. So there's there's quite a number of resources that are community focused around the Vectrex itself. And then there's a number of websites that have been around for quite a long time that are disseminating information. So there's a German Vectrex site. Uh, there's a UK Vectrex site that's been around for a long time. That's not only news but also holds some uh, information on schematic diagrams or old historical photos of, of uh, documents that were scanned back in the day by others in the community, you know, myself included. Certainly there's lots of YouTube, well, lots more now, uh, YouTube videos that are up about the Vectrex. So I think there's, a, there's quite, a, quite a number of resources to go find out about the Vectrex if you want to, or just enjoy it from a voyeur aspect as well. Yeah, I watch a guy called uh, Vectrex Roadie, and he's got a really <laughs> smooth voice. <laughs> yeah, he's an awesome Austrian producing lots of different video game-related uh, videos, and certainly uh, his one of his main platforms he loves is the Vectrex, noted by his name. 
lots of just hilarious videos there that are both informative and comedic and uh, you know I love I love the videos he produced along with his wife and his neighbors and his friends that um, have little skits revolving around his collecting. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, one story that we actually covered in our news uh, today was about um, the National Video Game Museum in Frisco had found a small Vectrex that uh, <laughs> was kind of one of the guy's dads was a, a developer. Uh, could you talk more about this one? Do you know the mini Vectrex? Yeah, it's it's just a well, it is a another format of the Vectrex, a smaller case. Definitely is meant to fit on a desktop. Definitely um, more squarish in the appearance when directly viewed head-on, but certainly long because it had to accommodate a CRT in it. But most of the original controls and the original electronics are simply repackaged in that mini Vectrex that you see. Not quite handheld, not battery-powered, but certainly small enough to fit on a desk and to be a quirky little thing. It was, as far as I know, just a one-off unit. It, there was no real plans to produce it. I could be wrong on that. I have to talk more with uh, Jay and the other people who are actually uh, having a meeting. There's a meetup of some of the founders this week uh, in Southern California. So I may have to see if I can make it down there and talk with more of them uh, on just how far that mini Vectrex could have gone on. But as far as I know, that was really just a one-off prototype. It looks pretty finished, doesn't it? It's quite complete. It's got like the branding and everything on there as well. It, you know, it looks like it could be like it could have gone into production like that. It certainly could have gone into production, you know. And it's a teaser for anyone who walked into the office at the time and saw it, you know, to to give them an idea or a, a hope or a vision of where it could have gone in its next version of of you know casing format. But if you, if you were to go and see it in person and flip over the controllers, you could see just how much of an unfinished prototype it was. <laughs> um, some, of the, some of it is not, you know, head-on, it looks great. But some of it is still a little exposed for, you know, taking that design, let's say, into the market. Well, one thing that, you know, we're big fans of um, over here in Europe, the demo scene was massive, you know, particularly in the 80s and 90s. And today it's kind of had a bit of a revival, but also the, the demo scene has kind of come to the Vectrex as well. And I mean, if there's ever any pieces of software that really push systems to their limits, it tends to be these scene demos. I mean, have you seen any really impressive demos on there? And how has that kind of um, been ingrained into the Vectrex scene? Well, I, th I think the demo scene, is, as far as the Vectrex goes, has been around certainly since the 90s through the 2000s all the way up to now. And as far as the demos themselves, being able to do 3D demos with hidden surface removal um, of 3D objects or incredible raster scan that you wouldn't expect the Vectrex to do since it's a vector, vector graphics-based system. There's a lot of demos that have been out there from <clears throat> uh, multiple authors. Trying to, to remember some of the ones that are, are more um, interesting, but uh, the authors are escaping my name right I, now. I or escaping saw, my memory right now. I saw an audio tap one uh, by Citrix, which was uh, one of the kind of music guys, and that was pretty impressive. Are you thinking of the Bad Apple? demo that was out there is that the one you're thinking yeah about? yeah having the kind of sound coming out as well and yeah that was incredible that was both the hardware and a software demo so certainly the bad apple demo or the bad apple videos known across a few different platforms for pushing the limits of the individual hardware that it's on but for the vectrex that was somewhat special of being able to feed into a specific cartridge that that connected to the Vectrex at the time, being able to feed in that video from a, an external PC, have it go into the Vectrex itself, have the Vectrex read the code, display it on the system, but not only do that display or, or give the digitized sound through the, the Vectrex um, itself as well. That's a, certainly a very impressive demo, which is since been um, replicated with other modern cartridges like the Vec Fever cartridge and produced by Thomas Santowski at this point. 
that's also a, a very impressive demo done somewhat differently, um, somewhat the same on the Vectrex. And there's some crazy hardware mods, like a standalone sound sequencer, <laughs> and kind of just some really mad stuff out there. Yeah, Chris over at uh, Binary Star Software, um, hooking it up to an external sequencer, or hooking it up to external controls that are that weren't necessarily part of the Vectrex heyday. Uh, yeah, the the hardware scene or is alive and well. The software scene is alive and well on the Vectrex for uh, people doing crazy hardware mods on it. As I mentioned a second ago, Vect Fever cart. That's just that's just nuts. I'm not only being able to provide a multi-game cartridge in itself, but also do other interesting things such as original arcade, or at least the Vector Arcade anyway, title emulation on it such that you can take, a, say, a ROM that's been dumped from Star Wars and use that to power a game or a, a direct binary translation into the Vectrex via the Vectfever cart. There's another a number of other people who produce their own individual fixed multi-carts. I mean, Sean Kelly is definitely one of those people who's not only done the multi-cart itself with his, um, with his cartridge, but has contributed to the Vectrex in a giant way, both a giant and a small way of creating that Vectrex cartridge shell that most everyone uses now to house their new games and their other multi-cartridges. That, I think, has done as much to kickstart the distribution of new Vectrex software in cartridge format as it was that uh, other creators such as John Donzilla did in documenting their methods and helping out the other people in the scene to create new Vectrex games just, you know, with... uh, the traditional development. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, new games that are on the system, how kind of active is the the homebrew movement? How many, like, new titles have come out? Any of note in the last few years that you can think of? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it was incredible. Um, James Watt created a version of Battlezone, which doesn't need any extra hardware, just the Vectrex itself, to 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 run on the Vectrex. It's, a, of course, a not an 8K cartridge, not a 2K cartridge. It's a... It's a large 64K cartridge itself, but it's incredible to, to think that the Vectrex, with its comparative to the arcade cabinet, very limited resources, can have you know Battlezone run on it. But not only that, um, uh, another Chris that's in the scene creating things such as Death Chase, which is a death race. Um, I, I would say recreation on the Vectrex. It's not a, in an exact port. The other things that really impressed me were this was this title by Vector Zoa called Spike's Circus, which did a very good implementation of having Spike riding on a unicycle, juggling items, and then um, having to balance all of that on a tightrope with um, some really interesting physics and gameplay at the time. And of course, there's there's uh, my, one of my favorites, my personal favorites, which is Vector Pilot. It's uh, done by this gentleman over in Belgium, which I think is just one of the most outstanding uh, Vectrex titles that is out there. So if you were collecting a Vectrex and wanted to, let's say, get a console and get a game that is not necessarily a, an arcade title game from the original era... Um, getting Vector Pilot or any one of his other titles is probably the way to go. Well, these are kind of machines from the 80s, and uh, I know a guy who does video game events, and he's got his Vectrexes running all day, and I think he has a shelf with broken ones. Um, I was (laughs) wondering how hard they are to maintain and keep going these days, and also, is anybody planning on doing like a FPGA recreation or a a, a modern uh, kind of uh, clone? Well, let's see. I mean, talking about the original Vectrex itself, there it is. And if you don't ship it correctly, it can be very delicate. 
if you're taking it to events all the times, of course, you're going to put wear and tear on it. There are a few people around the planet who offer services to repair the Vectrex. Sean Kelly actually is one of those in the U.S. who will have you send his Vectrex, your Vectrex to the Chicago area, and he'll take it in and repair it, doing what needs to be repaired, um, you know, whatever job it is that needs to be done on it, whether it's just simple capacitor replacements or if it's, you know, replacements of uh, other chips that need to happen in the inside of it to correct whatever issue it is. And there's a few people in each part of the planet, I think, that offer some Vectrex repair services. The, the community itself will do quite a bit to help you through different problems that you have. Certainly if you toss a message out onto Vector Forums, Atari Age, or in the Facebook group, uh, Vectrex Fans Unite, there's going to be someone out there who will have experienced your problem before and will be able to give you some decent advice on repairing your own Vectrex. Assuming that you can manage a screwdriver and a soldering iron and willing to learn a little bit if you don't already know how to do some soldering. As far as, you know, new Vectrex things that are going on, there's a gentleman that's actually cre created a new Vectrex board itself, logic board itself. It's not the same that's inside the Vectrex cabinet. It is a brand new design, or brand new in the sense that it's a different form factor, but not new in the sense that it uses all of the same original components, the same, you know, the same CPU, all of the same ancillary ICs on it, and has this, the ability to plug in to the Vectrex you know, display board itself and, and use the original Vectrex monitor but also an ability to be connected to a large 25-inch display or depending on whether you wanted to use one of the old vector monitors from the arcade or perhaps even rewind or revise an old television monitor yourself, this little board can be used in uh, conjunction with other boards to make a brand new Vectrex, so to speak. It's crazy that you know a system that you know is uh, rapidly approaching 40 years old has still got such an active community and such a passion around it as well. I mean, why do you think the system is you know held in you know such high regard by its fans, and why is it so close to people's hearts and has this community surrounding it? I mean, like it's like anything that's it's it's sort of uh, quirky even for its time. Not many of them were sold in comparison to the Atari 2600. It is an all-in-one design. The vector graphics itself leave a lot to the imagination, which, of course, enables your imagination to run away with itself uh, when you have line art versus just filled-in blocks of raster graphics. The fact that it is drawing lines enabled it to retain a sharpness and a clarity that survives a childhood memory all the way into adulthood. So it looks just as great now as it did when you, let's say, were looking at it as a kid. Um, that plus the fact that the community is still involved. There's still people out there who are willing to help you development-wise recreate the game that you may have never seen on the Vectrex back, you know, way back in the day, and do it with some effects that just, you know, dazzle you for what your expectations are in the Vectrex itself. I think all of those have contributed, all of those particular pieces have contributed to keeping the Vectrex alive and exciting in everyone's minds in the community today. And then, uh, you know, for those that are just looking at it from the sidelines right now, thinking about getting into it, it's certainly, uh, it's, its format and its display choice of vector graphics certainly excites those people to jump into the scene. Well, Chris, you've got you know two guys here now who really want a Vectrex. Ravi's not the only one. <laughs> I think after hearing you talk about it, I mean, I, I've loved seeing them at shows and everything. And it's like you said, it's such a unique system. So, you know, we really do appreciate you coming on and not only sharing the history but updating us on where the Vectrex community is today. Oh, I'm glad to have joined you guys. Thanks. <laughs> 